You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to We Are Libertarians. My name is Chris Spangle, and our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking with your friends. And we examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. And this is a special series on We Are Libertarians called The Swamp Explained. I'm joined by Rob Cortell of 45-Year Fly on the Wall in Washington, D.C., and Rob has worked for Republican presidential campaigns, government agencies like the EPA, and has confirmed, been confirmed by the Senate to the U.S. Federal Maritime Commission, He is, uh, w- which is where he usually ends up starring in Cato videos on the Jones Act. Uh, he's <laughs> also been a candidate for Congress and Senate. He also spent years working in the private sector, tech, uh, private sector, private technology sector, excuse me, working with startup companies. Now, given his experience and iconoclastic viewpoints, Rob gives us great insight into the swamp that makes up our nation's capital. With that, Rob, how are you enjoying quarantine? Uh, Well, you know, if you were following me on my my Twitter account, which is at Rob Cortell, you would have seen my quarantini, (laughs) (laughs) which is actually – James Bond, the writer of James Bond, um, uh, uh, Ian Fleming's favorite drink, which is, uh, uh, which is, uh, some, um, it's like, it's three parts gin, one part vodka and one, one half part, um, um, uh, I've forgotten the third one, but in any way, any case, it's a, it's a great drink. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, so I, you and, know, and, you're, and, 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 you know, we spent yesterday with a friend making masks. Really? Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's the only one I know who, oh, she's the only woman I know who can sew anymore. <laughs> and uh, she's very talented. So, uh, so we had a bunch of old napkins. And of course, today I read that napkins are the least good thing to use because uh, they're the, um, they're not tight enough. You know, which of course makes a lot of sense. Oh, but, so like a dent, like a cloth napkin, not like a yeah, paper cloth towel. napkin. Okay. No, the best thing is a six hundred count sheet that you buy for three hundred dollars per sheet. Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> are you gonna? So I saw the president, and I imagine the president kind of embodies. I mean, he kind of captured what I thought. He, they were like, "Will you wear a mask, sir?" And he's like. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. you know, I'm. What am I going to be? Dictators wearing a mask? Uh, not. For yeah, me. right. You yeah, know, right. just if, could, they can't say my mouth moving. If I have right. I, I, you know, and I don't know if uh, my cold last weekend was it or not. But if I'm not immune at this point, then I don't know that I'm going to wear a mask because I just don't know. I'm. I'm sure it helps, but maybe I'm part of the problem. I mean, where do you come down on it? Uh, well, you know what they what they're saying is that. Um, well, it's a it's a very complicated issue, uh, actually. Ironically, um, so so of course, the, early on there were some people wearing surgical masks and things like that, and then and then the N95, which is the really good one that they really need in the hospitals. And um, and towards the end of February, the Surgeon General I- issued a plea on his Twitter account: um, "Do not buy, uh, stop buying masks. We need them for the health um, community." and and of course, now we're into. Please don't use them by medical masks and surgical masks. Save those for the health guys. But, um, but if you can wear something over your mouth, that's a good idea. And of course, the point is not that you're preventing yourself from getting sick. It's that um, we now acknowledge that we don't know who is carrying the disease. So, and when they carry it, how long they carry it, and how long they can spread it. And they have confirmed that it can spread by mere conversation because you, you know, you spray small droplets out without realizing it and it can go six feet plus or minus and, and, uh, and then float around in the air in a cabin or something like that. So the reason to wear it is to not spread it to someone else. And, uh, so I have not actually done it yet, but, uh, uh, I am going to do it. You know, I'm on an island in Virginia, uh, and it's not very dense. But we have a couple friends who we who we know. We kind of know where they go or don't go, 
and they're pretty careful, but we're all the same age. And in the vulnerable group, um, I don't think any of us have any major underlying diseases, although one may be diabetic, I guess. So that's an, an issue. Um, and so people are indeed starting to wear them here in Virginia and like the grocery store and and places like that. And it's probably, it's a good move. I, yeah, I, think. I don't know how many people are actually leveling with us in, in society unless you watch some of the epidemiologists. But I think the trade-off of wearing a mask versus getting back to work, like I think most Americans will go, okay, that's what I, if I got to look silly for and feel awkward totally. for an afternoon, then okay, I'll do it. Well, there are whole societies which do that. I mean, yeah. as you well know, you know, the Japanese uh, wear masks through the entire winter, um, uh, as almost as a whole society. The Chinese do the same. A lot of Asian societies do that and think nothing of it. And of course, we are all so macho here. Um, <laughs> but, but we're also, you know, large parts of the country aren't so dense. One of the, again, if you go back to, to the Twitter feed, I have a couple interesting um, uh, data series that are on there. Some, one from the New York Times, one from another source and others. And you really can start to see the, the, uh, the difference in uh, how different localities are approaching it and, and the implication for the outcomes. So we, I think all but about 10 States are pretty much uh, shut down. For oh, you must've not watched the Sunday shows yet because those nine States that have not yet shut down were the whole conversation, the whole topic of conversation. And I always wonder, <laughs> you know, do, do these journalists go and check in on North Dakota or whichever one of the nine States haven't yeah. shut down and, and go, uh, are people voluntarily staying in place? Because here's my beef with a lot of it. Like I, yeah. What are you? What are you? What were you seeing? I haven't seen. Uh, so, uh, our last episode was about the trade-off, the the false choice between it, we need to get we need to get the economy back open versus we need to save lives. Like the reality is, people were going to shelter in place regardless of government action, right? Like people's rational self-interest means they're not going out to a restaurant. So for the economy, people. Who are you going to feed? Who are you going to buy that product for? The, the, the flow of customers weren't, were not going to be there, regardless of government action. But on the flip side, the, the people in these nine states, I doubt that they're all out running around willy-nilly. And the people who are, we're going to do that regardless of government action. And, and I just think that the Sunday shows today especially highlighted, you know, even Chris Wallace goes, I mean, I know we're all for states' rights, but a virus doesn't care about states' rights. What do you think, Surgeon General? And they, Jake Tapper ended his show with a, a passionate plea for the, governor, the, the president to have a plan. What's your plan to save us? And, and I'm just hmm. sitting here going, you don't, do you not realize we're in this mess and in this position because of the CDC, the FDA? And I have encouraged people to go read the lost month in the New York Times about the failures of this particular government to plan for this, but not only that, yeah. all the others too. Like, it, it just seems to me that these Sunday well, shows. There's plenty of blame. You're gonna, there's going to be plenty of blame to go around. Yeah, you know, they they look to the down. federal government to save them, but the federal government, in large part, is the problem because you cannot govern the third largest nation in the world from that high of a level. Like there, there has to be. So I, I look at the the false hope that the Sunday shows with the, the Defense Production Act and have you compelled anybody to do anything? It's like, do you really want Donald Trump making the decision who gets the ventilators? Because he's going to do it based on who was nice to him last week. You know, it's a, it's just sort of a weird conversation well, that so, you have so in the swamp I, I there. Hear your, I hear your libertarian stripes coming out here. Absolutely. But, but I would argue that, um, that in, in previous uh, crises in the past um, – well, we're not nece- we're not necessarily always prepared, you know. Not like a good Boy Scout, which I was, uh, <laughs> I'd be prepared. But um, but at times in the past, we've had a faster response, and and I would argue that um, this one was was not slow, but it was not coordinated. You know, we really first uh, knew about it in December from the Chinese, and it wasn't kind of really to early d- January till it was very clear. Although, you know, obviously the intelligence community could see it coming. And um, obviously um, uh, there are now all sorts of conversations coming out. Of course, there will be a congressional hearing on it. I I hope it is more like the 9-11 one than on the last several we've seen, um, where you have sort of a a, a neutral uh, leadership and they can ask people and turn over rocks. 
Um, but for example, on the issue of the stockpiles, while well, the stockpiles have deteriorated both because of time, but also their use, and uh, and they were used for a variety of things, including Ebola and, and a variety of threats uh, ten years ago, and and three successive uh, administrations, uh, one two Republican and one double Democrat, a two-term Democrat, failed to replenish. So. There will be something to say about that. And then the FDA, which has been very fast in the past, to develop rapid testing as it did again with Ebola and SARS and some of these others, um, um, thought they had a test in place and then that failed. So they failed that test. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and then, of course, we are confronted with our history and the Constitution and everything else. We are um, a... Uh, a a country of states, and um, you are correct, I think, that you can't mandate it from the top down very well, but you can lead uh, by example, and you can be straight up with people. You know, Trump spent the first month saying it was nothing, it's going to be gone. You know, summer's here, the temperature changes. I talked to President Xi. He assured me that it would be fine when the summer came, and this is just like a cold and, you know, 36,000 people die every year from car accidents. And yeah. Even Fauci, probably- there's a clip that I think Tom Cotton <laughs> may have put out or no, Brit Hume tweeted it out where Fauci in late January is going, the American people don't need to worry about this, which at the time yeah. seemed like a very reasonable thing to say. It's a Chinese thing. It doesn't look that bad based on the information he got. But, uh, you know, I can see how the people who want to defend Trump go, oh, even Fauci didn't think this was a big deal. You have all the you have Nancy Pelosi and Bill de Blasio saying, get out to Chinatown, get out to the Chinese parades, which, yeah, yeah. you know, well, get out to Mardi Gras. Well, and then you, of course, in, in retrospect, you can see all of these events, which become big, big uh, vectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one of the most chilling um, uh, videos is uh, one of the cell phones from uh, Fort Lauderdale. I think it's Fort Lauderdale. Um, a, a shot of the cell phone signals on the beach uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And then once the uh, it was all shut down, the dispersion of these cell phones across the United States, across mm. the globe, across to Europe, as these kids who are in summer, you know, on spring break go back. And of course they're taking it with them. Yeah. yeah. 28 kids yeah. from those kids who were on the beach in those viral videos, all those kids have got coronavirus. They're all tested right. positive there at the University go. of Texas. And, and yeah. they've taken it. Well, that was just a small piece of it. And of course, they've taken it home to their parents and their grandparents and their little brothers and sisters and, and their community. So um, I, it, it's a it's a factor in the, in the world that we live in that people travel a lot. And, and uh, you know, actually, if you look at uh, places like um, – I'm down here in Virginia. We've had uh, only a handful of deaths. We've had, I think we have one person, two people in the county of husband and wife in the school system have been identified as having it. Um, they seem to be fine. They're recovering. We have, I think, four in the next door county and a handful of people who have gotten it and died in the county next door next to the military. But that's going to that's gonna grow, uh, obviously, at some point. And these are all people who... And in most of these cases are retirees or, you know, they're reasonably well off. They're traveling. They've been places. They keep traveling. So it, it, it so one of the um, one of the first groups hit, of course, is the people who travel and shake hands with a lot of people like um, Prince Charles and and, uh, uh, you know, actors and actresses and all of those kinds of people. So um, but um and then the other thing we forget about New York is the density. You know, you can mm-hmm. you walk out the door onto the street from your townhouse or your condo or your apartment in New York, and you see and interact with, in the first 10 minutes, more people uh, in those 10 minutes than most people in the United States probably interact with in a day or a week right? Uh, because of the density. So. That's why half the cases in Indiana are in Indianapolis. I mean, they're well. That's right. That's why twenty five percent of the state. Yeah, we're twenty five yeah, percent of cities. the state. So, yeah, but but I do I do recognize, and you I think you've alluded, you've said it basically. You know, the fact is we are fifty states. They are semi independent. Um, they but this this virus does travel across state lines, and so that part of the messaging is right. And it's just one of these things that that people have to decide how responsible they want to be. You know, maybe up in North and South Dakota, um, the population is sufficiently um, 
spread out that they will only have a handful of cases. Um, but, you know, they, they themselves should be careful about it. And I suspect their people only go to the grocery store every two weeks anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Barbaro in the New York Times, who hosts their daily podcast, got in big Twitter trouble because he tweeted out a map saying all these southern states are irresponsible because the cell phone data, again, which is a very creepy thing, yeah, that yeah. all the cell phone data is being tracked, but said, oh, look at all these people driving all over the place. And, and the the then somebody overlaid a map of people the grocery store is two three ten miles away like yeah you know but he didn't understand that because he spends his whole life in new york city and that that's sort that's of right well my i saw that map and and you know of course my grocery store is takes me 15 minutes to get there right you have to get off the island go up the way it's it's only four or five miles away but you know half the way it's 35 miles an hour and you have to travel a distance and um and then i do once a week go, i admit i go to the whole foods uh, which is an hour and four minutes away down in Hampton Roads in Newburgh News. And, um, and I get nervous now when I walk in. <laughs> but they wipe everything down as you walk in, and you know, everybody's wearing uh, face masks. Rob, isn't it yeah. just, I mean, it is, it is, it is uh, this is just such a, my, it's talking to my dad and my grandfather. You know, my grandfather is 84. He's, I talked to him yesterday. He goes, I go, can you imagine? I mean, the question is just, can you think of anything like this in the, your entire life? And my dad said, sort of in the 70s when there were bombings and there was one here locally, I felt sort of insecure. And my well, grand, that's right. My grandfather said in World War II when I was a kid, we had blackouts and we had to hide with the lights off. But no, this is the craziest thing that's ever happened in my lifetime. I mean, yeah. you know. Being, well, the pandemic of 1918 certainly was felt nationally like this. And, yeah. Um, one of the other things I, I thought was very interesting, I you know, the New York Times published um, some of the data charts from 1918. And, and, and interestingly, I, I do think one of the problems is, I, I think the big problem is that people want information and the government ha has not been very good at getting it out consistently and packaged very well. And, right. and we think we are sophisticated, but the 1918 maps were this virtually the night the 2020 maps were vir virtually the same hmm. uh, as the 1918 maps the only difference being that 1918 what they published was the 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 difference in number of deaths from the norm meaning you know we forget that there are people dying of heart attacks and cancer and auto accidents and gunshot wounds and everything else every day today although i assume auto accidents have declined and Gunshot wounds have probably declined and things like that. Although, as we know, the, there's a whole set of people who have gone out to rearm themselves and buy more weapons. That's gone way up because I'm sure they think the government's going to come after them or something. But um, so who knows where the gunshot wounds have gone up or down. Um, and but we forget that this is all still going on. There's a whole life of death, <laughs> you know, going on while we're also worrying about this. Um, but that was certainly a national crisis, and, and people knew it was affecting. Um, it could affect them and their next-door neighbor, and, and it did. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. But this lack of data, I think, is the big thing. So, and, you know, I've been watching day by day, and, and, you know, my company, we do data analytics and artificial intelligence and all that kind of stuff, and I've spent years around this. Um, the guy who I first, I think, was the first dope in this whole thing was this uh, – guy, Peter Gaynor, who's the head of FEMA, you know, he'd get up and they'd say, well, how many ventilators do you have? Oh, I have a lot. Uh, well, but how many? Lots. And, and where have you sent them? All over the place. And, and how many have you sent? Lots. And I just, I, I couldn't help but flash back, you know, one of my early jobs in Washington. I, and I'm sure, I know I've talked about this before, is the Presidential Clemency Board when, when uh, President Ford pardoned the Vietnam era veterans and others. And it was part of the reconciliation after he, um, after he pardoned Nixon. Um, and it was a 364 day agency. We, we um, got about 35,000 applications really all at once. We did an ad at Super Bowl what, that all these young guys, mainly guys watched. And, and my job as the junior guy on the management team was to count every damn case. So every morning, I would start at the mailroom and how many, how many applications did we have today? Okay. How many have been opened? How many have been sent to the, 
to the processing for records. How many have been sent to the attorneys? How many have been reviewed by the attorneys? How many of the attorneys sent to the board? How many has the board seen? How many has the board completed? How many have gone back to review? And that's what we call the pipeline report. And, you know, in those days, we didn't have computers, and I did it all by hand, and really didn't even have spreadsheets <laughs> that, that were like we have, and certainly didn't have electronic spreadsheets. But we could tell what was coming in every day and where it was and who had it and where it was going. And uh, I have been honestly appalled by the lack of accountability in terms of where things are. You know, there, you know we know that there's a certain amount uh, in the national stockpiles of X, Y, and Z. We know the states have it. The states could have done their own surveys. I, I imagine they already had their own surveys of what who, who, who had in which hospital. And uh, they could have been doing that from day one. And, uh, you know, and, and obviously moving stuff around in advance of manufacturing and bringing stuff in from overseas and other places around the country. And, and, they, and it just appears from the outside, and I believe it's going to be ratified when they have the commission, um, that they didn't know where anything was. I just, I doubt that he was saying lots because he didn't know. I doubt he knew how many he had and where they were. And, and to, that was really appalling. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it's probably hard. You know, so I saw an article. It's a national tragedy. We don't know how many ventilators there are and where. Well, in a free society that's built on the markets, the government probably shouldn't or won't know that. But at the same time, they're. Once you get down to the state level, apparently ventilators are not terribly used that often or they're used no. infrequently. And so yeah. that's why there's not a lot. But when you've got Ford and GM wanting to make ventilators, why are you picking a fight with them? I mean, the yeah. Kushner, well, that's also well, the other interesting Kush, thing. Well, and, let me just say, Kush, right? yeah, Kushner came out and thought that it was a defense of Donald Trump, his father-in-law. Uh, mm -hmm. To which the person I was watching the news conference with went, wait, he's his son-in-law? I go, yeah, <laughs> if you've been paying attention for any amount of time, you'll see how corrupt these guys are. But Kushner thought, oh, this, you know, the president has been engaged in procuring things. You know, for instance, his buddy, who's a doctor who works at a New York hospital, called and said, we don't have enough ventilators or masks or PPE. And Trump went, really? Oh, I'll get my son-in-law on that and had him procure a month's worth of stuff. And you go, yeah, that's right. That, Is that, that corrupt or what? That's not a defense. That's, you know, him simultaneously fighting with the governor of New York saying, I'm not going to send you what you need. You don't need it. But then his buddy calls, you know, and so, yeah. And you look at 3M and them saying they're not allowed to sell to Canada or the American government threatening the European countries for sending life-saving supplies to Iran. And you just sort of go, this is, this is, none of this seems very, I mean, as a libertarian, it's a great illustration of a lot of what we've been talking about for a long time. And I look at the Chuck Todds and Jake Tappers of the world and I go, how do you not see this repeated incompetence and corruption <laughs> and want more of this? Why do you want the yeah. thing that caused the problem in the first place to be the solution? But, you know, alas, well, they had, live in Washington, D.C. I think you have to be. But I do think you have to be a little more specific about what caused it and what the solutions are. I mean, I, I think most people, and uh, and notwithstanding Fauci's statement early in January that he thought they wouldn't have to worry, the fact is he's jumped on it pretty rapidly, as did uh, Deborah Bricks. And, and both of these people are uh, pretty good examples, in my view, of uh, they're, they're personally high levels of competence, um, and they are... Um, and they are the only thing standing between us and Donald Trump running the, the whole place. <laughs> so, you know, and I cannot imagine what these these meetings are like um, in, in the task force in the White House where um, they're trying to explain that, well, this is a lot worse than you think. And oh, by it's it's also a lot more contagious. And here's some things you can do. Um, and there, you know, we we complain about the swamp. This show is explaining the swamp. These are people who've been in the swamp developed a lot of expertise um, and they they know what they're doing and of course we can say um, CDC, CDC and everybody else didn't have this or that well who who uh, gives them that well the Congress gives it to them and has the Congress done it no uh, through Republicans and Democrats so in the end it's it comes down to the people's house and Senate where a lot of the blame will lie of course if they run the the uh, studies, the the uh, 
you know, afterwards, the after action report, they probably won't finger themselves. But, <laughs> but you know, like Burks, you know, was was in the military for years and then as a professional. And then there was a doctor at, at Walter Reed. She worked with Fauci. She did. She has, I mean, fabulous credentials, UN, you know, all these diseases. Fauci's similar. So these are really, really intelligent, thoughtful people. And I am personally thankful that periodically some of these people pop up out of the swamp. And one, uh, one anecdote to kind of highlight what you're talking about. I watched the, the first Rose Lawn uh, press conference that they did if, this past week. And I was absolutely stunned when, when uh, Trump said, I think we're doing a great job. They told me a minute, few minutes ago, 2 million people were going to die, but now only a hundred thousand are going to die. And I'm like, twice yeah. the death toll in Vietnam is, is a victory in your mind. That's winning. Like it was a stunning thing to hear. So I started looking into it. Well, apparently what Fauci and uh, what Fauci and bricks, it's bricks, right? Bricks or right. Burks had to do was literally drew him a graph that showed him a big spike up to 2 million and a low spike to 100,000 and asked him, do you want to be the president that kills 2 million people or has a hundred thousand people dead? And he went, oh, well, obviously 100,000. And so he literally walked out proud of himself. And I'm sitting here going, you should have had a grasp on this. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt four weeks ago. Like, it, it, And so it does speak to your point in that the swamp in some ways has, when, when we, the people, elect somebody because they're kind of funny and they're in press conferences talking about, you know, I was under a model. Well, not that kind of model. And, and it, you see bricks in that clip move out of the frame <laughs> to yeah. not be associated with it. But, you know, when we elect somebody who is a talk show host because he's kind of funny and kind of tickles our ears, there are some adults in the room. And, and that's the catch-22, I think, for a lot of libertarians because, you know, Fauci seems like a competent person, but at the same time, like, he's not an elected person. So how do we reconcile the administrative state for all its good and all of its bad? Well, but you, but but look at the elected people there. Would you like them running it? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that is the problem. But um, and and of course, we all are watching. Uh, I'm sure the Democrats are wishing uh, uh, Cuomo was the uh, their candidate, uh, or that they had just begun the primaries now because he he's actually uh, he he whines and cajoles and pleads and demands and and arm twists and everything else. He acts like a real leader in this and the way you're supposed to do it, but. But uh, Trump is just every evening we watch it. And of course, that's part of his campaign show, too, is the, mm -hmm. you know, commandeering the, the, the podium. Uh, well, his but, numbers have never been better. Look at my great ratings. Like, oh you go, my God. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. But I, I think um, I, I do think there is a lack of uh, again, I think when all is said and done and you see it day by day and it's just um, and I, I think they're getting best, better at the messaging as we go along and. And uh, I think Bricks and Fauci decided they needed some charts, not only to show him the president, but uh, but uh, uh, the public. And, you know, you can contrast this to times in the past. Um, the uh, I think I've talked about, um, I wasn't there, of course, but uh, the way R Roosevelt um, did his radio shows he, in, in the war, there was a piece today in the paper saying that he wanted to communicate. He wanted to do it clearly. Some of his advisors recommended he get on the radio every day. And he said, no, people will stop listening to me. And by the way, it takes me three to four days to put together my speech mm. and my message and develop it in a way that people will understand. And, and uh, you know, that kind of ability. Uh, and of course, Trump is working within the modern world and the modern news cycle. And he has commandeered it. I think we all just wish he was better at it. Uh, and uh, and and Fauci and and uh, Bricks and the others uh, and and frankly Pence is doing his his thing well. I will give him some credit. He he went through the SARS uh, deal when he was governor uh, in Indiana and managed to survive all that. Uh, I don't know if you were there when he was governor, but I, I was. Uh, the big yeah. one of the biggest dings on Pence here locally was his handling of the HIV outbreak in Scott County, and mm -hmm. and part of that was caused by him revoking um, a free needle exchange, and so it kind of lit things on fire. And so, you know, that combined with Rifra, I'm sitting here going, 
this guy's going to be in charge of the commission. And I've found him to be fairly competent, and he seems to, by all accounts, from all the different governors that are on CNN, you know, they all give him high marks and seems to be handling things very competently. I think the thing with Trump is that his numbers are going up because it's the first time any of us have seen him be competent. And mainly what we see is his rallies or his tweets or that amplified in the news. And so when you see him being a serious person, you kind of go, oh, he's not just a total buffoon. He does have some like serious points to him, but I, I t- I'll tell you the the longer I watch over the l- last two weeks and watch these press conferences, the less I am impressed with him, and the more I go, man, your vote really does depend on somebody living or dying. Like I've always said that, like your vote, yeah. vote yeah. voting is a really important thing because it matters for someone's life or death chance. Like it really, people. I think after this, I hope one of the things that comes out of this is people take voting much more seriously or actually vote because. It's a crucial life and death proposition, and it's coming home in a way that many of us never expected could happen unless we're Bill Gates. Well, and of course, the nature of this election is changing, has changed immensely. I mean, I, you know, we as uh, separate from the whole issue of where, where's Joe Biden and where are the Democrats? And frankly, I think Biden is smart to mm-hmm. lay low right now yeah. um, for a little bit more. Uh, I, I, I tell you, I've said it a million times, I think the press is helping Trump um, they, by, by beating him up on every misstatement or every exaggeration or every, every this and every that, all they do is uh, make themselves seem petty. And that, uh, and that, of course, helps him rally his own supporters. But even those of us who cannot stand him kind of roll our eyes uh, almost every night is something not only he said, but what the press said. I'll give you a great example. When he said that we want, he wanted to reopen by Easter, it was all they talked about on all the Sunday shows. Yeah, uh, CNN did three solid days on it. Every single guest that came on, it was the first question. Is Donald Trump right? I mean, it, it is so obvious the propaganda around it that they they have a point of view and they're trying to get everyone to agree with them like anderson cooper who i think has been a fine journalist if you watch him on you know thursday afternoon at 2 p.m now it's basically here's a statement that i believe do you think i'm right is his his journalistic style but that easter thing they were like a dog with a bone with it and you just go there's more layers to this than just the Donald Trump, what he thinks and how he feels about things. And they, they cannot let it go. Well, that's right. And I, and you know, I, I you probably feel the same way I do about that statement. I, uh, I do think uh, it was a lack of knowledge, but it yeah. certainly was aspirational. I think that's the right term. I don't, I don't give him credit for being uh, informed that that was a likely uh, time you could do it, but there's no question that he was right. Sometimes the, at a high level, you know, the cure is sometimes worse than disease, but in this case, um, that's a little lacking in empathy for people who have it. Mm. But, um, but we do have to get the economy back on stream and, uh, and everybody understands that it's a self created, um, uh, recession. Um, now, but you don't want to do it too soon and you don't want to do it too late. And, uh, it's a tough balancing act. And of course, just uh, if people had, uh, it was interesting to me, he, he did that. He got beaten up for two or three days. And then all of a sudden you started people kind of coming around. Well, how soon can we open it up? And then, and then gradually we've evolved into more conversations around the course of the disease and, you know, all these, these more uh, credible graphs of, uh, of when it's, it's going to hit and what that means. And, and in the various communities, uh, New York Times, I will say, has done a great, great job. I agree with that. And um, and actually, um, there are a couple of very good ones on uh, the government too. One of them is called HealthData.gov, and that's a terrific one, state by state by state, when it, uh, the uh, peak is going to be, and um, and then that's state by state bed shortages and and all of those ICU units and things like that, that it's, that they're finally getting their handle on the data. Um, but I, I think I personally would be surprised if it hits a quarter million, but it certainly looks like it's going to hit a hundred thousand. If you assume the peak in, in uh, the U S writ large is meaning mainly half of which is New York is uh, by the end of the week. Um, and we're already 
couple of 13, 1400 a day, that'll probably rise to a couple thousand and just multiply that time 10, 10 days. And you got another 25 or 30 people, thousand people. Yeah. I think a lot of it is yeah, that there is, there. yeah. So I think a lot of it is that, um, I think Donald Trump exemplifies this and he made a statement at some point in the last couple of days that this isn't the flu. This isn't the flu. This is, this is serious. You have a friend who's in a hospital. I had a friend who's in the hospital. I call him. I ask how he is. He says he's okay. I call back the next day. He's in a coma. This is not the yeah. flu. It's vicious. And yeah. I think he illustrated what I've kind of found in talking to people online in that they're experiential learners. They need to sense something. Right. They can see a hurricane. They can see a tornado. They can see the destruction. They can't see, taste, feel, hear this. It's not hitting them. And so they're mad that the government is forcing them to do something that they don't want to do because they don't totally believe it. But once it hits them, once it affects them, what, you know, what is affecting them is what is their main concern. And so not being able to go to work, I don't think there's anybody who – I'm certain that the governor of Indiana does not want to shut down restaurants and shut down his economy in an election year. You know, yeah, it's no, just right. <laughs> right? Well, like, and but you, you raise an interesting point though about people and how they operate and their their uh, their judgment about risk. So, you know, I am right here on the water, and I will say that every time there is a hurricane, and we have never had anything uh, really bigger than about a, a two and a half or a three. Uh, but some of those are pretty powerful, and the water will come up very high. And I have, you know, we have. We have stuck a number of these out and put um, uh, tape measures on trees so we could see how high the water was wow. uh, coming along to inundate us. And we've never been washed away yet. We're pretty high. But even so, you know, there's a there's a kind of little bit of this can't happen to me in the risk thing. And yeah. I will say that I, at my, you know, I'm closing in on 70 and I uh, think about this when I go to the grocery store and I have several friends who have had it. One, uh, who were in my class uh, a million years ago at Yale in graduate school. Um, you know, two of my friends uh, had it in California and brought it back to New York. And one was very sick and another couple is in London and half of them have it and half of them don't. And, and these are all people who travel and all of that. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's out there. But now if you were a Democrat, what would you do about this? You know, that's, that's a big question. I see that, we, I guess it's the, the uh, we have a primary coming up this Tuesday, and uh, Bernie and, and Biden are campaigning online as best they can. I I have not seen Bernie yelling and gesticulating, although I'm told that's how he deals deals with it. And uh, Biden seems to be growing into it a little bit. Um, so I'm that is terribly difficult to get your message across, but it means all about organizing. And of course, you earlier made the point about how critical it is to vote. So we have this pressure from some governors to demand that there be physical voting. And who knows, by November, maybe we can have physical voting. I hope we do. Uh, and an opposition to voting by mail. And again, there is this mythology out of, unfortunately, my side of the aisle, Republican side, that there is all this fraud out there. But there is so little fraud, even in... Um, in provable fraud, even in uh, by vote by mail, that it's ludicrous that they would make that. So you can only interpret that as intended to suppress the vote. And I, I believe that's what it's intended to do. Even mm. as a Republican, I will say my Republican colleagues are less concerned about truth than they are about suppression. Yeah, I you alluded to Biden. Um hiding out and i think you're right i think the best thing he can do is when he gets the opportunity to go on tv is to go you know and he's not doing this but this is what he should do in my opinion you know now's not the time for politics people are in peril i you know i i stand with whatever the president's doing you know we can have a conversation about what could be done better later but right now i want to focus on the red cross needs blood and then let's do this and let's do that you know i think that would be sort of the smarter thing, and he's kind of cozying up to Cuomo, which is probably smart too. Um, mm -hmm. In my opinion, Whit Whitmer is on television every five minutes, so she can become become his VP pick. Uh, but the the Biden campaign, you had a report that they've put out. Their full throttle Donald Trump is the worst thing that to, to ever happen. He's Hitler, but we need to ha have him do the Defense Production Act and be in control of 
<laughs> making masks. Right. All the so I I don't know. I I think he's probably best just staying out of the spotlight because well, and I it'll, betcha, it'll come back around. Well, and I I bet you he's he is uh, sorry that he made the promise that he will pick a woman yeah. for the vice presidential candidate because if he had not made that promise, it would be a no-brainer that he would pick Andrew Cuomo. 100%. 100%. And Cuomo would be the best uh, addition to the political equation because he could sit there and say, uh, no, you didn't. Every time yeah. Trump said, yes, he did. Uh, he He's younger enough. He's high energy. He's demonstrated real leadership. Uh, you, you know, as I say, he whines and everything else, but he whines, pleads, cajoles, and he gets what he wants. Uh, and he's known for that. And uh, and I, I'd i be willing to bet you uh, on a three to one right now that uh, Biden uh, actually picks Cuomo yeah. and uh, tosses his his uh, thing about having a, a female on there. And he would make the point that he has demonstrated serious leadership and it's time we take beat Trump. If he's a pragmatist, that's where he's going. I agree, and I'm sure – because you could easily explain it away, and most people would go, okay, you know, listen, I think like the rest of America, we were all impressed with this person. He, he – you know, this was such an epical event that it changed everything, and we saw such leadership, and, you know, I'm only going to serve one term, and we need to set up somebody who's a great leader, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's it's easily explainable, awayable, but, um, yeah. you know, the yep. – the reality is, who who knows? But that's uh, Whitmer to me seems somewhat of a Sarah Palin like pick, and that you don't know what you're going to get. And she seems. Oh, well, I I don't think Whitmer is anywhere on the, the equation. I <laughs> I think it's really one of the, it'll be a Klobuchar or somebody like really? that if it's a woman. Yeah, I I think Whitmer is too much of a whiner in this too. Yeah, and she's not getting anything done. The the reality is. Uh, Listen, my mom is a nurse. She is spending, she's 60. She's a smoker. She is high blood pressure and she's spending five of the next six days in the ICU. So I'm not trying to be unsympathetic. I've got a personal stake in this in a big way. But when I see nurses and politicians like Whitmer and everybody on television near tantruming about the lack of PPE, I go... Literally every hospital on the earth is trying to, like, did we fail supply and demand and basic economics so poorly in high school that everybody, like, I, I look at Whitmer and I just go, like, what? This this is, <laughs> this. there isn't enough on earth to supply the demand. Like, the Brooklyn hospital that Donald Trump threw under the bus, it's very simple. On a shift, you might use one mask for 20 people and now on shifts they're using 20 masks for 20 people. And so they need two to 300,000 masks a week. You know, that's a, an enormous order of magnitude increase in supplies. And Whitmer, I just, I I'm with you. She seems to be kind of using the opportunity to get herself on Sunday. I don't think she's, I don't think she's a serious choice. I mean, she's just the, she's basically just the something for Trump to throw darts at right now. So um, anyway, but, and of course, other things are going on this week is despite all this, you what? know, we have what, yeah, like <laughs> what's going on this week, right? What? Uh, well, uh, he fired, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, um, inspector general who, uh, forwarded the complaint from the CIA yep. employee, uh, which I, I guess I'm not surprised. And then of course he appointed uh, a guy from the white house to be head of the, uh, the, uh, cares act, um, uh, oversight. Uh, he's getting a lot of pushback from the Democrats, but actually he has a very good record and uh, very good experience. And, and so I'm, he, he's actually, and he's a reasonable choice despite the politics of it. The look, yeah. The, the look of it, the, the cares act. I don't know. What are you hearing? I'm hearing from small business friends that the application of the loans and some of this stuff that Mnuchin is interpreting things that are not maybe constitutional, that, they're not certain they're going to take the money that there may not, there may be an issue with some of this stuff. Like, what are you, I, what, you know, my view is, it, is none of that matters. Uh, I think they're doing the right thing. You know, I, I think, um, I think we have been lucky in the last two great financial crises to have Fed, federal reserve chairs who were creative. Uh, there are people who, you know, wringing their hands about how creative they have been, but, um, but uh, you know, Bernanke uh, did as much as he, 
could do at the time or felt he could do. And, and uh, George uh, W. Bush and, and, uh, and the Secretary of the Treasury and all the others actually bit the bullet on awesome. TARP and things like that. And they got a lot of crap for it later. But had they not done it, it would have been much, much worse. You've, you've just lit the hair on fire of every Austrian econ- economist. That's yeah, I know. But, I, I, you know. but they just as soon go, go down with the ship. And I would rather not. And, um, and, you know, the economy will at some point, you know, the question is, do you care about people as, a, as opposed to process and things like that? And, you know, this will be seen, uh, people will carp about it so, and, and all of that. And I think they're going to have to put more money in it. I, I have some experience with the CARES Act myself. I have, you know, I founded a couple companies and, and two of those companies um, are Bank of America clients. And of course, Mnuchin was saying you'll be able to walk into the bank in the morning and walk out a couple hours later with your money. Well, that's not really true. B <laughs> of A, we, my guys waited up until uh, uh, 8.30 in the morning on Friday to see when they finally published the, the rules, the bank rules, and the, the form, and they had it in five minutes later. And uh, by the end of the day, uh, B of A had two plus billion dollars worth of applications from small businesses. And of course, small goes up to 500 employees. And um, and today is Sunday. We have gotten two notices that the application uh, was received and filed, which is a good thing. Um, But but even there, Bank of America announced its own rules on top of um, the Treasury rules. And one of their rules was that you already had to have a loan from the bank, hmm. uh, SBA, or you could use a credit card or something else. And there are, frankly, a lot of businesses that take pride in not having loans. We right. have no loans from any banks, but fortunately, we have a B of A business credit card along with the Amex card. So that was just fortuitous. So, uh, wow. and then later, I think uh, yesterday, I think B of A withdrew that rule because it got so much static, rightly so, for that. Um, so, you know, this is not going to be an over and done with thing. And of course, 1200 2500 however many thousand dollars people are getting are not going to get them through this. Um, I do think the, the loans to businesses um, will be really significant. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'm now not near any good, any restaurants. I'm the closest really good restaurant is half an hour away. Um, and my son runs a restaurant. He's a head chef at a restaurant in Australia. Uh, called uh, Tequila Mockingbird. It is a <laughs> Latin, it's in Sydney. It's a Latin American uh, destination restaurant in Australia. And mm. they have great tequila, mezcal drinks. And it looks like quite a, a scene. And and uh, so I, I can feel the pain in the family <laughs> right. being laid off in the restaurants. Although the other side of that is he, like a lot of other people, not a lot, but a number of people in the business have... Um, uh, gradually built new businesses. So his was a sit down is a sit down restaurant, and they built a takeout a business from scratch. Um, they um, the first day they had twenty five people come in, and by the fourth day they had three hundred orders, and they have now hired back ten out of the twenty two people they had, and they're hiring more, and um, and it's going crazy. And I'm seeing that I'm getting every day I get two dozen. Um, emails from the restaurants I used to patronize up in Washington about what they're doing. Some have shut down completely because they made the calculus. Now with, uh, with this money, I would not be surprised if some of those reopen yeah. um, and, and bring some people back. They, they're not going to do sit down, but they can do um, carry out. And I think that's great. And people are, so, um, you know, $2.2 trillion is roughly uh one, uh, it's roughly what, 15% of the $17 trillion economy. It will come back to us uh, eventually in, in accelerated economic growth. It's like Trump is so lucky. I mean, he will, at the end of the day, count his lucky stars if this is all over. And, and the Congress, Democrats and Republicans alike, gave him $2.2 billion, trillion dollars worth of stimulus is what they did. So um, as bad as it is, uh, if we can just get through the next uh, two or three months, uh, you know, I think 
uh, I think it will be seen to be smart, and I think he, he'll probably throw more money at it. Yeah, he said um, he's saying something he really has no concept of. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. he, he basically said about infrastructure, he goes, listen, rates are at 0%. We can borrow 0% interest money. Let's do this $4 billion infrastructure thing because there's no interest. And he really thinks about this stuff <laughs> as if he's borrowing it from Deutsche Welle, you know, or whatever the bank is in Germany that he borrows money from. Like, you're just like, it's not borrowing money on a credit card and you have 0% interest. Like, there's other ramifications to the federal government borrowing money from other nations or itself. I mean, it really is stunning how well but, it, it but now but up. remember other people are borrowing those bonds and and even when um the they cut the fed rate when powell cut the rate to zero to to a quarter point those were all snapped up so so borrowing is all of everything we print is being snapped up by investors all across the planet mm-hmm. because uh it is seen as safe and uh so He's not completely crazy. I think his his uh, you know it has always been said you should borrow when rates are low. And as a bank, as a real estate guy, you know you're right. He's translating it from real estate into national the national credit card, but and it's not a direct translation. But um, it, it is much better to borrow when the rates are low and to build infrastructure when you can get the money cheap. And um, we are so far behind on infrastructure. We're like two trillion dollars behind on bridges and, and roads and all of those kinds of things, uh, if not more. So it's, I'm now the problem, and this is what, um, Obama found when he, he, uh, uh, they did the stimulus, the building and all that after the, um, you know, that crisis after he followed a Trump, uh, Bush, um, you know, remember the shovel ready projects, we're going to fund the shovel ready projects. Well, the shovel ready projects are the ones theoretically that have already gone through, um, permitting and and uh, this and that and and you know the environmental permits and all that stuff and of course that stuff doesn't just happen on the turn of a dime or a turn of a shovel of dirt either so there's uh he could throw two trillion at it and they could borrow it uh and they could uh and maybe they get some things started but infrastructure takes a lot more time to get going but at least i don't think it's crazy chris you know i think it's um uh and it would certainly, you know, a lot of things you do in a time like this are psychological. Um, and that's where this whole equation about leadership comes in. And um, and this is where the balance between carping and complaining and whining, which the Democrats do in spades, um, harms them and hurts Trump. I mean, helps Trump because he is, uh, he is, uh, he's always beating somebody up, but uh, but he's also at the same time touting a vision that may or may not be real, but um, <laughs> he, he's touting it. So he's he's laying down a marker and some people will believe it and some won't believe it. And some of it's true and some of it's not. So, well, it's tough times. Norm- and interesting times. Yeah, it's I'm having I'm I hate to admit that I'm having fun, but the intellectual exercise of trying to parse all these different arguments and learn. I've never learned more. Even in seventh grade, I didn't learn this much about the immune system. Like I, I just, oh, yeah, you know, the learning history in the 1918 flu and, and just doing this show is such a fun mental exercise to come here and talk to people like yourself and talk to the listeners and learn things and explain the context of things. It's. It really is fascinating, and it's it's one of those moments where I love history. I've studied history my entire life, thanks to summers in St. Augustine, Florida. And the the thing that I just keep coming back to is I cannot believe I'm living through one of those moments in history. You know, yeah. 9-11 and being old enough to live through that at 18 and then also living through this, it just, it's just, it's really something, and, and it's interesting to see the the little beautiful moments that people have you know walking in the neighborhood across the street for instance that this is a very generic neighborhood i've walked in it the seven years i've lived here there's never anybody out it's it's just like the most dead neighborhood i've ever seen in in the suburbs i saw on my walk two days ago 
more sidewalk chalk of be, you know, be happy. Don't be sad. Like all these mm-hmm. little encouraging messages. Someone had a joke of the day on a, on a sandwich board out front. <laughs> I heard neighbors introducing themselves. Oh, your name's Carol. I thought it was Kathy. Like, you know, it, it, you saw neighbors talking across the fence to each other for the, I've, I've just, I saw like a dozen people on my walk for the first time ever. And so it is, there are little moments like that where you look back and go, all right, this is like reading Studs Terkel, <laughs> where all those all those <laughs> well, people had those I, beautiful yeah, little yeah. moments and sadness. Well, I, th- I think there are a lot of those, and um, I mean, like when when my son sent me his emails about how their business was doing and how they were responding to it. I mean, it really, I just couldn't help but smile. I really felt like they were really taking adversity and turning it into something new. And and you're right. I mean, people, uh, if I'm going to the grocery, I call my neighbors, and if they're going, they call me, and and um, so I, lots of little things. I think it's easy to, to become dystopian. Um, but I think that's not the way Americans think about things. I think we, we tend to kind of miss the first, first two or three beats of the March and then we get in, in step and then we, we, uh, you know, run and try to conquer it. And I do think that is something, uh, unique about us as a country. And so wherever we are today, we will be better tomorrow and better the, Maybe not for the next five five to six days, but but in general, and um, and and I think uh, we also tend not to let uh, ideology get in our way. Chris, you know, to your point about you know the uh, which economists would like or dislike what's happening right now. I mean, the reality is Americans tend to be very pragmatic, and that's why we ultimately succeed in a yeah. lot of things. So, uh, so, but we're not going out to restaurants, are we? No. So you're going to have to tell us how to cook at home. Those of us who <laughs> I now most Americans spend 40% of their food budget going out to restaurants. And so that's mm-hmm. partially why the grocery store is so empty is that 40% is now being spent on cooking at home. I am one of those people that spends 75% of their income on eating out. Now I know that you are quite the chef. So what are some of the things that you're making at home? So if you're dining in your home instead of dining in D.C., what are some recommendations that you might have? Well, uh, first, by the way, I'm probably in the 90% category <laughs> in terms of spending money on restaurants. But yeah. uh, we do love to eat. And I am a good cook. And um, uh, my life is complexified by the fact that uh, six weeks ago, I decided to go on a keto diet. Oh, and, uh, uh, you know, I saw a movie of myself on Cato um, and I just and I looked at it and I said, who the hell is that fat old guy? there? <laughs> Where did that pot come from? And I swore I was going to get rid of it. And um, so I started about six weeks ago and I am down 15 pounds as of this morning. Congratulations. Four or five more to go. And I'm wearing stuff that I haven't literally worn in eight or 10 years. And. And, um, and, you know, for those who don't know what it is, it's a high fat, high protein, low carb diet, which means I can't eat anything white, rice, noodles, which I love, pasta, Italian pastas, um, breads, no root vegetables, carrots, anything, can't eat fresh fruit because fruit has sugar. Um, and, but I can eat as much uh, cottage cheese and full fat cream and, and creamy cheeses and and uh, bacon. I mean, I eat bacon like four days a week, four mm. mornings a week, and and sausages and and meat and and but, but low carbs. And it seems to be working. But um, but the thing I, you know, in a, in a normal life, I do lots of pasta. You know, my wife and I, when when we are actually cooking, we tend uh, in a week we want to have beef once, chicken once, pork once, fish once, pasta once. You know. Um, can't think what I'm missing, but we we try we basically go through all the lamb once we love all those various foods, and I make a lot of pasta and a lot of Italian. Um, but um, uh, one of the dishes I wish I could be making right now is uh, basic um, wide um, noodles with um, or you saute Italian sausage with mushrooms and fennel, lots of fennel, lots of fennel, and lots of mushrooms and and Italian sausage, and then you uh, pour in a little cream and uh, lots of pepper and salt and um, maybe a tiny bit of of a a broth, beef broth, and let it simmer into a sauce and then put the pasta, you know, cook the the pasta to uh, short 
of al dente. So it's dente and then throw it in the sauce and you have a really a white, uh, 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 you have basically a white Italian sauce, bolognese. Mm. And, and it is terrific. Lots of herbs. And, you know, I, I use a lot of fresh marjoram and, and, uh, and, and uh, thymes. You want the aromatic herbs like that, not basil in this. Um, and that's what I wish I was eating, but I'm not. Actually, one of the <laughs> things so I discovered <laughs> is that is that uh, a Chinese food is actually pretty good on these diets. You know, I I cook the sauces. I cook a lot of. I've been doing eggplants and and uh, things like that. Yeah. Um, what if you do, what if, instead of flat noodles in that bolognese, you did like I, I don't do noodles. noodles. Or- no, I cook it for my wife, so she gets it. Oh, and I've what? got a lot frozen. Put put like my, sp- like uh, what, what zucchini noodles in there instead of actually. Well, you can do zucchini noodles yeah. and stuff, but that doesn't appeal to me very much. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I'd just rather skip the noodles and go have double on the sauce. Right. Um, yeah, but the uh, um, uh, so I mean, I I made a found a great cauliflower soup recipe and otu lengi. Um, uh, 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 Otolenghi is uh, in a, a is a great chef, and he, it's not a keto cookbook, but but there are a lot of things in there that sort of fit the diet. Um, yeah, is that plenty? Is a, yeah. The book he's is a, plenty. Yeah, o- Otolenghi. It's Yatamo yep. Otolenghi. I think he's uh, he's like a he, he's a he's chef an, from Israeli like Israeli chef. Yeah, yeah Israeli, he's an Israeli yeah. Palestinian. Uh, opened a restaurant in London, has become a big hit, and his latest cookbook is uh, uh, something like cooking simple cooking. Uh, simple cook or cooking is simple or something like that. And, and, uh, and it, they're very short, clear recipes. And, and so, you know, I basically boiled up a bunch of, uh, I, I covered some, uh, well, I, I sauteed some onions and garlic and, uh, uh, a couple other things in, uh, butter. Cause I get to use a lot of butter or ghee and um, and then I threw the chopped up cauliflower in, and then I covered it with water, and I boiled it till it was soft, and crunched it up in the um, the Cuisinart till it was very smooth and creamy. Poured in a little bit of cream, and threw in some um, curry powder, and um, and uh, it was it's terrific. It's a great soup, and you don't have to put the cream in it. And I don't think he does. He actually adds mint and some other things to it as well. But my mint's not up yet. Um, so there are all sorts of things you can do. Um, and, you know, spicy beefs and stir fries. I've gotten the walkout a lot lately um, because of these Chinese things. Um, and I did discover that instead of using, I can't use anything with corn, like cornstarch is a thickener. So what I've discovered is that arrowroot mm, um, yeah. is a very good thickener and it's a natural thickener as well. And that's on the diet. So you know, <laughs> we're being very creative here. I have not made any desserts. I admit to that. And I, you know, I, well, I did try one dessert. Uh, I love uh, olive oil cakes and there's some fabulous recipes. And if your writers want to write me, I'll, I'll post them on your website. Um, but um, some of these olive oil cakes with a touch of orange and uh, Grand Marnier, uh, just really fabulous. And I found one recipe using almond flour um, and uh, coconut flour and, you know, it, it was okay, but it was a little granular, which, and, and that reminds me of one other dish. I can eat shrimp, you know, lots of shrimp. And, mm. and uh, I did do some um, fried shrimp. I got some uh, eight count shrimp, which means each shrimp is two ounces and, and kind of um, cut them down the middle so that they would curl and, and uh, dipped it in, um, in uh, coconut flour and uh, egg white, frothed up the egg white, and then dipped it in coconut. Coconut's on the diet, and and uh, fried it in what? Guess what? Fr- coconut oil. <laughs> yeah. So dipped, you know, coconut flour, egg white, coconut, uh, unsweetened coconut, and then coconut oil, and it was delicious. It, with a, you know, I made a sauce with a little bit of sriracha and, and uh, mayo and a little mustard, and uh, it was great. So. You can actually um, do a lot on these diets. My wife complains, though. <laughs> she, she's actually eating really well. Uh-huh. And, uh, but I, ha- you know, I make something different for her in addition to whatever I'm cooking. So, um, so like we had steak. Uh, we have steaks probably now, some, something on the grill now a couple times a week. 
And uh, one of my favorite dishes is uh, uh, Beard's or Anna, Potatoes Anna. Mm. And they are basically very thinly sliced uh, potatoes. Uh, and you, you start with butter on the bottom and then you do a layer of potatoes and salt and pepper. And then you do more butter and then a layer and butter and layer and butter and layer. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and you, you roast it, uh, you know, 400 degrees for about 30 minutes, 25 minutes till it's really brown and crispy. And you can, you can actually, you know, turn it upside down and do it out of the pan or just serve it in the pan. And it's one of my favorite dishes, but I can't eat it, but you know, I made it for her. So she's yeah. a happy woman, you know, <laughs> very nice. You know what they say, Chris, happy, happy wife, happy, happy life. wife, happy life. Yeah. So that's where I went wrong. <laughs> uh, oh God. Well, so. it was great. It was great to catch up with you and yeah. um, I'm starving now. I'm literally, <laughs> literally listening to you thinking about, man, I need to fire up the grill and start lunch. I'm starving now. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great talking and uh, you stay safe and, and wear your, wear your bandana. All right. I'll uh, at least look like if I can, if I have to wear something on my face, I want to at least look like a bank robber from the forties. So yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Thank, All right, Chris. Thanks. Th- thanks Rob. Thanks everybody for listening and we will see you next week. You're listening to the, we are libertarians network and you can find more great shows like this at we are shows like we are libertarians with Chris Spangle, the Brian Nichols show, the boss hog of Liberty, now hear this with Chris Spangle, Gingerarchy with Trisha Stewart Mann, and our training podcast, Upward, Libertarian Activism. All of these shows are supported by our patrons. If you'd like to become a Patreon member, visit wearelibertarians.com. Thank you so much for listening to this show.